Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 33, verses 10 through 22. Isaiah chapter 33, and beginning in verse 10. Let's hear now God's holy word. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you, and the people shall be like the burnings of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are afar off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who gestures with his hands refusing bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed. And shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given Him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception, of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help this morning, let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33, 
Let's focus our attention on verse 17. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. These are beautiful words. Majestic words. Words that remind us how important it is for us to be reading the Bible regularly. And over the course of time, a year, two years, three years, to be reading through the entire Bible. Because it's not enough to memorize the Romans road. It's not enough to memorize the uh, navigator's Bible memory plan. These are important verses, but there are many verses that are, are in need of, of some diligent mining out. Nuggets of spiritual gold that are of great use to us in the Christian life that point our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and so many of them are found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament as well as the New is a gold mine. David says in the Psalms that the Word of God, the Law of God, the, the Scriptures that God has given us is, is greater and more valuable even than fine gold. And here we find fine gold. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Now it's important to understand the context of Isaiah chapter 33. This prophecy is part of a series of prophecies in chapters 30 through 35 that are looking ahead to this deliverance that I mentioned in connection uh, when we sang Psalm 46c, this deliverance that God would accomplish from the Assyrian invasion. Assyria having conquered the northern kingdom and sacked Samaria in Israel to the north in 722 B.C., about 20 years later, around 701, Assyria continued southward and defeated numerous cities in Judah, in the southern kingdom, and gathered their forces around the city of Jerusalem and besieged it. That means they surrounded it so nothing and no one could go in or out and they were seeking to starve and, as it were, suffocate the people of God and then eventually invade into the city and destroy them. And this is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 8. We'll see that in a moment. But this is the main subject of these verses. How this invasion itself is a judgment of God upon the sinners, the idolaters, the unrepentant people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet, how He would deliver His people in a way rewarding and blessing those who had repented, those who were walking in righteousness and in the fear of God. So we're dealing in chapters 30-35 through 35 with the deliverance from the Assyrians and the, the aftermath. Chapter 35 is, is dealing more with this glorious Gospel uh, theme of, of the aftermath of God's deliverance. But then in chapters 36-39, through 39, you find a historical section that actually chronicles the invasion of the Assyrians, the boasting of the Assyrian armies and their generals, 
And the, the spokesman for Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the spokesman that he had, the Rabshakeh, mocking the living God and trying to intimidate Hezekiah and the people to simply surrender into their hands. And you see in chapter 37 this deliverance that God answers and honors the prayers of His people. The angel of Jehovah Christ Himself comes and slaughters 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and sends them back to their land and Sennacherib is killed by his own people. And we're told in chapter 38 that Hezekiah became sick. And I'm not going to get into all the details of the story, but God miraculously healed him in response to his prayer. And that once, uh, once Hezekiah was healed, he fell into temptation toward pride and vanity and invited the Babylonian envoys that had come to congratulate him and encourage him after the healing from the illness. He brought them into Jerusalem and showed them all of his wealth all of his gold, all of the things, the beautiful things that he had in his palace and in his kingdom. And the Lord said that in fact he would bring judgment and eventually the Babylonians, not the Assyrians. The Assyrians had been defeated, but now the Babylonians would be raised up and would take Jerusalem captive. And even the sons of Hezekiah would become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this is, a, this is a section of Isaiah that is very encouraging on one level. God delivers His people. He's a refuge for His people in a time of trouble in the Assyrian siege. But it's looking ahead to God's judgment that would not involve deliverance. God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians who would sack Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Now chapter 33 in particular is describing the judgment that would come upon the hypocritical sinners in Judah and in Jerusalem. And you can see that this Assyrian invasion is going to take them by surprise. Uh, In uh, verse uh, 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? And so there's a sense of the wrath and judgment of God against their sin that never had quite occurred to them until the moment they saw these Assyrians marching toward their villages and cities, many of which they destroyed and conquered on their way to Jerusalem. And then the hypocrites in Jerusalem It never occurred to them that God would fulfill the threatenings of His covenant. And here comes the judgment of God who is a consuming fire. And they're struck with fear at this God and His judgment. The devouring fire, the everlasting burnings of which these historical judgments are a token and really foreshadow the great judgment of hell that is to come. But we see that there are faithful believers like Hezekiah and others, Isaiah as well, who walk righteously, who speak uprightly. They're not perfect, but they're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And God delivers them. The reason He delivered Jerusalem was not in order to to deliver the hypocrites. 
It wasn't just so that they would be calmed down because they're so fearful. Nothing is further from the truth. God delivered Jerusalem to deliver and to be the shadow and the comfort and the refuge and the strength of His people who believed in Him, who trusted in Him. And my friends, it was so that the hypocrites would see His goodness and His mercy and repent. But God brings this vindication of those who are serving Him. We'll look at that in a moment. And we're told that those who are serving Him, those who are looking to Him by faith, a living and active, obedient faith, their eyes of faith will see the King in His beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Their heart will meditate on terror. In other words, their heart, having lived through this deliverance, will think about the terror, think about all these intimidating things, and meditate on the fact that God had delivered them. They never encountered the terror. They're simply thinking about the judgment of God, learning from it, being instructed by it, looking at God's holiness and justice, meditating upon it, but not drinking it, not enduring it themselves. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? In other words, these people that the Assyrians had sent to Jerusalem as they're in this siege mode and they're counting the towers and they're calculating how long that uh, Judah can continue to have its food supply in the city of Jerusalem and at what point are they going to invade. They're counting the towers. They're keeping records and weighing this and that. These war counselors and generals and experts, where are they now? They're slaughtered or they've retreated back into the land of Assyria. And God's people will meditate on that deliverance. They will not see, verse 19, they will not see this fierce people of obscure speech beyond perception. These people that speak a foreign language and come in and invade and seek to destroy the people of God who speak the language of Canaan, the language of Zion. You can see here that God is telling that us that if we trust in Him in troublous times, if we obey His commandments even when it's hard, even when our circumstances are unfavorable, that those who honor Him, He will honor. He delivers them from this judgment. And He says, through the eyes of faith, not only will you see the King in His beauty, not only will you see the land that is very far off, but verse 20 Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed. So they'll see the king in his beauty. They'll see the land that's very far off. Again, we're going to explain this in a moment here. But they're going to see the land that's very far off. In other words, they're going to see in the deliverance of earthly Zion, they're going to see the Jerusalem that is above. They will see a foreshadowing by faith of the ultimate deliverance of the people of God in the life to come. A tabernacle that will never be taken down. Not one of its stakes ever removed. That's not true of earthly Jerusalem. It was just over a hundred and some years and Jerusalem, the temple, would be destroyed and conquered by the Babylonians. No, no, this 
far off land that they'll see by faith is the heavenly Jerusalem in the world to come. Well, we'll look at that land that is far off this evening, God willing. But this morning we're focusing our attention on this great blessing for those who trust and obey the Lord. They see the King in His beauty. Now, who is this King? Some commentators would have us to believe that this is simply a reference to Hezekiah. Hezekiah had clothed himself in sackcloth and ashes and wept and prayed before the Lord and the Lord delivered the people and now Hezekiah is going to dress up in all of his beautiful royal apparel. And that's the the full extent of this verse. And you may be looking in your study Bible right now and that's what they say. And with all due respect and, and humility, they're absolutely wrong. This is not speaking of Hezekiah, the king in his beauty. The new King James does a wonderful job here uh, of capitalizing the word king. I think the translators, their instincts are right on. Because what this is saying is that by faith, in the context of Isaiah, by faith, those who trust in the Lord, who is their refuge and strength, will in this deliverance from the Assyrian armies by the pre-incarnate Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, in this deliverance, they by faith will see a vision of Emmanuel. They will see a preview of the Messiah who is to come. Who is this King in His beauty? Who is this King of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord. Mighty in battle. It's not Hezekiah who comes out of this smelling like roses and looking beautiful in his royal apparel. It's King Jesus. Emmanuel, the angel of the covenant. The angel of the Lord and of His presence. And you'll you'll know that the language that's employed in our text, your eyes will see the King, is very significant in the book of Isaiah. In fact, when God called Isaiah to the prophetic ministry, in Isaiah chapter 6, when King Uzziah died, the year that King Uzziah of Judah died, the son of David, Uzziah, the descendant of David, on David's royal throne, he sinned at the end of his life, was cursed with leprosy, and the, the literal historical king of Judah died. And in that year, we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And John chapter 12 says he saw the glory of Christ. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in this vision, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Not the king of Judah, not Uzziah, not Hezekiah, not Ahaz, not David, not Solomon. The king of glory. The king in his beauty. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Of course, Isaiah responds in humility, Woe is me, for I am undone. Verse 5. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now listen, he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the King. 
He in this vision sees a vision and no doubt there was an element of faith as well. He sees, he knows, he perceives the reality of Emmanuel. God with us. The Messiah. The King who was to come. And then God calls him and He says, here am I. Send me. And God says, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That's saying that during Isaiah's ministry, as he's prophesying of things like the invasion of Sennacherib into Jerusalem around the city, as he's forecasting these prophetic events, and as he's preaching the gospel in connection with those prophecies, that what the people should do in their response is to see and hear and understand and put their trust in the Lord and be healed and saved. But the fact is that God has raised up Isaiah in the midst of a wicked and perverse and unbelieving generation. And they, they hear what Isaiah is saying and they see it right before their eyes. The hypocrites in Zion, they see the invasion. They see the deliverance. Though it happened at night and it was, it was not something they saw literally, but they saw the, the, the aftermath. They saw the destruction of 185 thousand Assyrian soldiers and the rest of them scurrying back to Nineveh, the capital, and to Assyria. They saw it. They kept on seeing it, but they did not perceive. And yet we're told in Isaiah chapter 33 that there were those who saw and perceived by faith. Though they be a small number, though they be the holy stump, as it says in Isaiah chapter 6, a small minority, a small remnant in the days of Isaiah, nevertheless, they saw and they perceived by faith. And what Isaiah is saying is that when you see this deliverance take place historically, you who are not the hypocrites, the unbelievers in Zion, but the true believers will see and your eyes in seeing this historical deliverance will see the King, even as mine eyes had seen the King, says Isaiah. And this is confirmed in Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz comes to the throne, this wicked king, and he's fearful, he's a hypocrite in Zion, and he's fearful that this new alliance between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel at this point before the the, the Judgment took place in 722 on that kingdom. This alliance, this confederation or conspiracy between Syria and Israel to the north against Judah, he's fearful that he's going to be conquered and replaced. And Isaiah goes to him and he says, Ask the Lord for a sign. You don't have to be afraid. God made a covenant with David. He's going to be faithful to His promises. Chapter 7, verse 4, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you. He says, don't be concerned. God is faithful. He says that 
Uh, it shall not stand, verse 7. And then he goes on in that prophetic portion to say the reason it won't stand is that the head of Syria is Damascus, the capital, and the head of Damascus, the king, is Rezin. And then he says the head of Ephraim is Samaria, the capital, and the head of Samaria, the king, is Remaliah's son. What's the point? Well, who's the head and king of the vulnerable southern kingdom of Judah that is afraid of being conquered and afraid of having its king replaced by somebody else other than the line of David? Who's the head and king? He doesn't mention it. He doesn't say, well, you'll be delivered because the head of Judah is Jerusalem and the head of Jerusalem is Ahaz. He doesn't say that. But he goes on to say, ask for a sign to confirm your faith. And Ahaz says, foolishly and flippantly, oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. I'm not going to ask a sign of the Lord in this false, hypocritical humility. Verse 13, Isaiah says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? In other words, Isaiah is weary from the nonsense he's getting from Ahaz. But he says, uh, But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. God with us. The Messianic King. Then he goes on to say that between Isaiah and Ahaz's day and the coming of Emmanuel, that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel will be conquered. And that he's going to raise up the Assyrian army, which he did, to conquer these two opposing kingdoms. And they're going to invade. And he, he describes that. He, he um, whistles, as it were, for the king of Assyria to come and invade. And chapter 8 describes this. It, it describes this intense Assyrian invasion as the king of Assyria verse 7 the waters of the river strong and mighty the king of Assyria and all his glory will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks he will pass through Judah he will overflow and pass over he will reach up to the neck he's surrounded the capital and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land O Emmanuel. So, the head of Jerusalem is Emmanuel. That's why they don't have to be concerned. God with us, the Messiah. And they can't conquer the Davidic king and replace him. Otherwise, Emmanuel will never be born of a virgin. And so, this is cementing the confidence of God's people. This land that you're attacking, king of Assyria, is Emmanuel's land. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves and be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. God is with us. Emmanuel is going to deliver from the king of Assyria. 
a preview of the Messiah to come, whom chapter 9 describes as the Son who is given the child who is born unto His people. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, or Divine Warrior, as it's better translated. And it speaks of His kingship upon the throne of David and over His kingdom He shall reign. So again, Assyria can't succeed. Syria and Israel to the north can't succeed in toppling God's kingdom because of Emmanuel. And then it goes on, as I mentioned, into chapter 30 and into chapter 31. And following up to chapter 33, you have this forecast of the invasion and the deliverance. And so if you look at chapter 30, verse 30, we're told this, the Lord will cause His glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of His arm with the indignation of His anger and the flame of a devouring fire. There's the everlasting burnings. The judgment of God upon the hypocrites. With scattering tempest and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as He strikes with the rod. So it's God who will defend His people. You can see it in chapter 31, verse 8. Chapter 31, verse 8. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man. And a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his threshold or his stronghold for fear. And his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And chapter 32 brings, I believe, another prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in righteousness. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord of the battle. And in chapter 37, this is confirmed that it is the angel of the Lord. Chapter 37, verse 33. This is the prophecy concerning the deliverance. He, Sennacherib, shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own name's sake and for my servant David's sake. So, who's going to come and deliver them? Jehovah Himself. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home. Jehovah's going to come. The angel of Jehovah comes. And this is again a pre-incarnate manifestation of Emmanuel, Christ Himself, who defeated His enemies. The same Christ that Isaiah says, My eyes saw the King, and I was convicted of my sin. He says to the believers in Zion, Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. It's like Abraham, who rejoiced to see Christ's day. He was looking by faith to the coming of Christ, 
And then it says, he saw and was glad, specifically honing in upon the deliverance of Isaac when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son on the altar and he obeyed the Lord and the Lord stopped him at the last minute and provided a ram from the thicket to take the place of his son in so many ways pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of Isaac, the son of promise whom the father offered up and in terms of the ram from the thicket. So many pictures of Christ there and we're told that Abraham by faith saw the day of Christ in that historical deliverance. And that's what it's saying here. They'll see this historical deliverance and in it, they'll see something of the King in His beauty. And that forces us then to ask the question, who will see this King? Who will see this King of beauty and glory? It's important for us as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper because one of the things that we're called upon to do in order for this to be a means of grace to us is to discern the Lord's body. The Lord's Supper has visible elements and actions. The the, the pouring out or shedding forth of the wine into the cup. The breaking of the bread. The distribution of these elements. The taking and eating and taking and drinking, all of these outward, physical, visible signs that are meant to be a means of God's people by faith looking to Jesus, remembering His death until He comes, perceiving His presence in our midst as we commune with Him and we commune with His people, seeing the outward things taking place and yet seeing Christ and His finished work in them. Seeing the King in His beauty. Will your eyes see the King in His beauty at the Lord's table tonight? Will your eyes discern the Lord's body and blood as depicted in the elements? This is an important question. We saw that there are those in this passage who will definitely not see the King in His beauty when they look upon the deliverance from Assyria. When they see this outward token of Christ's power, they're going to see it visibly, physically, with their eyes, but they will not see the King in His beauty in these tangible, physical things. Who are those people that definitely won't see the King in His beauty? Well, we're told in verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Now sometimes in the Bible, the word sinner is used in a way that applies to everyone who has ever walked the face of this earth with the exception of Jesus Christ. Every human being that has ever lived, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sometimes that word sinners refers to every single person. The godliest believer like Paul says, I am the chief, the worst of sinners. But there are other times when this word is not meant to describe everyone who is imperfect and has fallen short of the glory of God, but it specifically is describing those who live and walk in sin. Even in the New Testament, the Bible speaks of the sinners and the tax collectors coming to Christ. And that means these are people whose lives were 
drenched in open rebellious sin and those sinners were all sinners. Every time somebody's converted, it's a sinner coming to Christ. If a Pharisee had been converted, it would have been a sinner. But that term is used to describe people that are open and scandalous sinners living in sin as their lifestyle, as the air they breathe, and they're converted. And that's an amazing thing. The sinners in Zion, in this case, is referring to those hypocrites. That's how we know that it's not referring to every single person, but it's referring to those who are unconverted, those who are still in their sin, those that still love their sin. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. In other words, these are the sinners who don't think they're sinners. Jesus says that He came to proclaim repentance to those who are sinners, to those who know that they're sinners. To those who are like sick people who know that they need a doctor, not to healthy people or people who think they're healthy that refuse to go to the physician. And so, this is talking about sinners in Zion, hypocrites who think they're not sinners, who won't confess their sin, who won't acknowledge their sin and come to God through His Savior for forgiveness and cleansing, to be washed as white as snow, to be clothed in the robes dipped in blood, to be right with God, justified, sanctified. The hypocrites who think they're not sinners. Now all of a sudden, Assyria surrounds the city and they begin to be filled with fear. And you see this in society. People who are not right with God. People who are not walking with God in Christ. People who don't believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When society begins to shake and totter and the the foundations are destroyed, God's people are looking to Christ seated on the throne in glory and the world is filled with horror and fear and they're intimidated and they're worried and they're anxious. Fear has seized the hypocrites because in their conscience they know that God is holy. In their conscience they know that the things they're doing deserve death. And while they wouldn't admit it, they suppress it in unrighteousness, deep down, there is a tiny whisper in their conscience that says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's why they're so afraid to die. That's why these hypocritical sinners in Zion are more afraid than even Hezekiah of this invasion. Why? Because they're afraid to die. And why do they go to such great lengths so oftentimes to protect themselves and they're so worried and they're so anxious, scurrying around in fear? Why? Because they know that the wages of sin is the second death. And that after death comes the judgment. Who among us can dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Whether this is the question that's being asked by the hypocritical sinners in Zion, or whether this is a question that Isaiah under inspiration is asking and putting to all of us, it really doesn't matter. It's a question we need to take very seriously when we, especially when we come before the Lord at His table and we examine ourselves knowing that if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. This is a time for self-examination. This is a time to think about God as a devouring, consuming fire. It's a time to think about God and the everlasting burnings of hell and to examine ourselves 
to see if we be in the faith. To see if our response to the King in His beauty is Isaiah's response. Not the hypocrite, but woe is me for I am undone. When Isaiah looks upon these things, when he sees King Uzziah die and the nation is fearful, when he sees these things taking place, and he sees Christ on the throne, he responds in humility, he confesses his sin, and he seeks to do what God's called him to do in obedience. Here am I, send me. Those are the people that are going to see the king in his beauty by faith continually. Notice the fruit of their faith is described here. They walk righteously. Salvation is not just a one-time thing, but their salvation works itself out by the grace of God. Step by step by step, they're headed in a certain direction. They have a certain trajectory. And they're walking in righteousness. The Good Shepherd is leading these sheep in righteous paths for His name's sake. And I ask you, where are you going? What is the direction and trajectory of your life? Are you moving? And what direction are you moving in? And how are you moving? How are you seeking to get to heaven? How are you seeking to get there? By trusting in Christ? By coming after Him, denying yourself, and following Him on a path of suffering to glory? Are you coming with Christ, after Christ, trusting in Christ, seeking to obey Christ? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Are you speaking uprightly? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and you see that the the true Christian despises what is unjust. They despise the gain of oppression. Somebody offers them a bribe, they gesture with their hand, not interested. They hear of a plan to shed blood or to disenfranchise somebody else to get some type of gain. Hearing of bloodshed, they stop their ears. They shut their eyes from from seeing this evil. They walk with their eyes on Christ in the path of righteousness. And notice this description of a true Christian involves his or her feet walking in righteousness. His or her mouth speaking uprightly. His or her heart despising the gain of oppressions. We see as well hands and ears and eyes. In other words, the whole person. If you are a true Christian and you desire to see the King in His beauty by faith, then you need to remove the things that are clouding your vision. Those things involve sin. Those things involve temptation. Those those things involve compromises to try to seek to gain the things of this world. And even for the true Christian, when you don't devote your whole self, your whole body as a living sacrifice, your body and your soul, which were bought at a price, Paul says in Corinthians. When you don't do that, you can't quite see the king in his beauty. If your eyes are on evil, they can't be on the king in his beauty at the same time. Now, as I said, that's true for the Christian in terms of seeing clearly and not having our vision of faith obstructed, but all the more true for the unconverted person. The person who has never seen the king in his beauty. 
The person who, because they've never seen Christ's perfection, fails to perceive their own imperfection. They're not undone. They don't see their unclean lips. They don't take time to seek the Lord in repentance and confession of sin to be cleansed from their unrighteousness. And they don't put effort to overcome their sin and walk in righteousness. That person will never see the King in His beauty by faith. Because they don't have faith. And as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is a dead faith. It's a blind faith. My friend, if you're outside of Christ, or if you're in Christ struggling to see the King in His beauty, surrender your whole person. Surrender your feet, your mouth, your heart, your hands, your ears, your eyes to Jesus Christ. Surrender them today because you can't offer a partial sacrifice. God is not content for you to offer Him your body without your soul. Maybe you come to church and you're physically present and you do certain outward things, but it's mere nominalism. It's it's Christianity in name only. You draw near to Him with your lips. You sing the Psalms. You draw near with your lips and physically, outwardly, but your heart is far from Him. Like Lot's wife, you're physically outside of Sodom, but your heart is in Sodom. And so that's where you're looking. And that's what you're thinking about. And you'll never see the King in His beauty if you offer and surrender only your body and not your soul in this pharisaical, hypocritical, moralistic, externalistic kind of false dead faith. But at the same time, you can't merely surrender your soul without your body. The fact is that true faith leans on Christ, falls upon Christ, stands upon Christ, surrenders all to Christ, both body and soul, for He redeems both. You can't just surrender your soul without your body and say, well, I read the Puritans, but then I pull up all kinds of evil images on my phone or on my computer and satisfy my lust. I have a wonderful prayer life and I'm out evangelizing. But then I involve myself in drunkenness or I indulge an angry spirit or a bitter heart. We cannot, my friends, we cannot offer merely the soul without the body. Our God must be the Lord and not our belly, our appetites. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh body and soul, a whole burnt offering to the Lord. That is true faith, true repentance, true conversion. And you see it here. Those and only those who have a pure heart will see God. In particular, Christ by faith. And this King will be seen by faith. In Isaiah 53, famously, Isaiah says, who has believed our report? 
to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus is going to come and His own are going to reject Him. They're not going to see the King in His beauty. They're not going to see anything beautiful or desirable or attractive in this King, but not so the people of God. They see in Christ and Christ crucified on the cross the King in His beauty where the world of Jews and Gentiles sees foolishness, sees a stumbling block, sees a weak and bleeding Savior, unworthy to be called the Messiah. The people of God in every age by faith see the day of Christ. They see it by faith as they read the Scriptures. They see it in the historical deliverances and comforts and blessings that God brings into their life from the deliverance to Assy- from Assyria all the way down to our own day. We see the day of Christ in all of these things and all of His gracious benefits toward us. And we see Him in His beauty. We see Him in His power and might. Assyria talked a good game and they mocked the people of God and they said that God was weak and God couldn't deliver them. And don't listen to Hezekiah. My friends, how beautiful for Jesus Christ to come pre-incarnate as the angel of the Lord and to shut them up so that unrighteousness and iniquity shut her mouth and He destroyed His enemies victoriously. We don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we take pleasure in the justice and power and vindication of God's covenant faithfulness through Christ in this deliverance, in this victory. Who is this? It says it later in Isaiah, who comes from Edom, all His garments stained in blood. This victorious Lord who crushes those who mock the living God. My friends, we see His beauty in this deliverance from Sennacherib, but how much more beauty do we see in His death? How beautiful are the feet of this Savior who comes proclaiming good news. Behold, O Zion, your God reigns. Proclaiming the Gospel of peace. They look upon Him. They they see one who is marred beyond the human appearance. Beyond the appearance of a man. Isaiah 52. They see that and they see nothing beautiful. We look at Him and we see all the more beauty in His suffering. In His death on our behalf. Because it bespeaks His love which is stronger than death. Love for God Love for His people. We see the victorious Son of God in and through His death making a spectacle of powers and principalities. uh, Ruling over them. Conquering them through the blood of His cross. We see the beauty of His person, both God and man. He's both sovereignly in control, the priest offering up the sacrifice, and He is the vulnerable Lamb of God, the sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. He's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He doesn't open His mouth. Yet, He is the Lord of glory, the Sovereign King who sovereignly releases His Spirit into the hands of the Father. We see His weakness and His strength brought together in a remarkably beautiful way. The King in His glory 
We see the beauty of His holiness. The thrice holy King on the throne from Isaiah 6. Perfect, holy, harmless, undefiled. Kept every law of God that was ever given. Fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And He gives us that beauty for ashes. He clothes us in those beautiful garments of righteousness and salvation. He, he, puts, he puts Himself upon us. The Scriptures speak of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, if the King is displayed in His beauty and we put Him on, that makes us beautiful. The beauty of the Lord, of God, the Lord God, may it be upon us as Moses writes in Psalm 90, my friends, by faith in Christ, it is upon us. The beauty of His sufferings. Never a man appeared more hideous and forsaken of God than Christ on the cross. And yet never a man more beautiful and obedient and holy. Never a greater spectacle of obedience and conformity to the will of God. Jesus was never more hideous in the sight of His Father in one sense and never more beautiful in the sight of His Father in the other sense as the Lord our righteousness We see Him as a King. The crown of thorns on His head. The purple robe. The scepter. The rod that they beat Him with placed in His hand to mock Him. The placard on the back of the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The King of the Jews. All of these things calculated to mock Him. To to enhance the sense of His ugliness so that no one would ever rise up against Rome or rise up against the Jews and their religious leaders again to make an example of this man, Christ Jesus. But in these things, we see the crown of thorns. He became a curse for us that we might be blessed in Him. We see the purple robe clinging to the blood of His back that had been thrashed by the whips. And we see the blood that flowed and was shed to cleanse us from every sin. We see the rod that beat Him. And we see that it is by His stripes and by those blows with the rod that we are healed. And that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. My friends, the beauty of His sufferings. Meditate on these things. Take up that noble theme upon your heart this afternoon from Psalm 45. Read the Scriptures and meditate on the gracious words of Jesus Christ. The gracious words that flow forth from His mouth. Though our sins nailed Him to the cross, yet He speaks to us a Gospel of peace. Let us pray. Gracious God, thanks be unto You for Your Son, whom You did not spare, but gave up for us all. We pray that You would help us to make our calling and election sure. That we would examine our lives to see whether our eyes are upon evil, whether we have devoted either our soul and our mind or our body and our actions or both to wickedness, or whether we can honestly say that we offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice and a whole burnt offering unto You through Christ. Help us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
Help us to see the King in His beauty as we contemplate the Gospels and the Psalms this afternoon. Calibrate our eyes of faith to come to the table and in these physical elements to see the King in all His beauty. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.